Welcome to the Women's Wellness Psychiatry Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I'm your host, Anna Glazer, MD, a reproductive and integrative psychiatrist here to help you make sense of the complex world of women's mental health. If your goal is to improve your emotional well-being, find fulfillment, and feel like your best self, you're in the right place. Welcome, my listener friends, to this third episode of the Women's Wellness Psychiatry Podcast. In this episode, we'll discuss self-care, the obstacles to prioritizing it, and how to shift your minds in order to create time in your busy life for more self-care, given its benefits. Let's start by defining self-care. So the World Health Organization defines self-care as, quote, the ability of individuals, families, and communities to promote health, prevent disease, maintain health, and to cope with illness and disability, with or without the support of a healthcare provider. I think that's a very thorough but rather complex definition. And so when I think about self-care, I really think about caring for my health from the perspective of physical, emotional, psychological, financial, and spiritual contexts. I think there's really a lot of potential obstacles to self-care for women. And what I wanna do is categorize them into two primary categories. I think there's psychological obstacles to self-care, and then there's time and logistical obstacles to self-care. And so what I wanna do next is just go over some of those obstacles and then share some additional data with you and then follow up by discussing ways to overcome these specific obstacles. So what are some of the psychological obstacles to self-care? One of those obstacles is that there's a lot of societal, family, and cultural expectations that women internalize about self-care being selfish and about prioritizing oneself. I think those can come from so many different sources, whether we're talking about society and culture in general, from the media, from what we read, what we see, And then also from our families of origin, however we grew up, how we watched our mothers and grandmothers and how our partners watched their mothers and their grandmothers and watched what those women did in terms of prioritizing themselves versus prioritizing those around them. And so I think there's a lot of internalized stigmas and stereotypes that come into play that women internalize, and these lead to obstacles to promoting self-care. There's a lot of stereotypes of women as being very much givers and nurturers, and that that's associated with being selfless. It's an interesting association, right? Because when you look at the definition of nurture, there's really nothing in that definition that connotes that it's something that is necessarily selfless or at the expense of oneself. To nourish is to give, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're at the same time taking away from yourself. But it's interesting that in society today, this kind of coexistence between these two concepts has been made. Another psychological obstacle is that there's this intense value of productivity in today's American society. For those of you who are listening from other places, I think this is something that's somewhat different in in cultures outside of the US, but certainly not unusual all over the world, is this value of productivity at the expense of oneself. There's so much that we hear about lack of any kind of personal time off, PTO, or vacation time. I'm currently in Silicon Valley where 
a number of companies have created this idea that you have unlimited PTO and vacation time, but what ends up happening is that no one actually takes it. And so I think that's interesting where we have this value of productivity and of basically doing things for others, whether it's for your company, your boss, your family, your partner, your children, at the expense of yourself. And then the final psychological obstacle that I'll mention is guilt. Guilt that comes up whenever we try to do something for ourselves, take a little bit of time from ourselves. And I think that that's something that really comes from all of these other concepts that I was just mentioning in terms of the stereotypes and the stigma and the misplaced values in today's society. And all of that comes together to create that feeling of guilt, that sense of I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing whenever we think about doing something that is for ourselves. So we definitely need to overcome all of these intense obstacles, these psychological obstacles, in order to be able to engage in self-care. In addition to the psychological obstacles, there's also just practical logistical obstacles related to time and the fact that time is finite. I think it's interesting to think about that, for example, women, while being almost 50% of the workforce, and most of that is full time, still do 10 times as much domestic labor in terms of things like child care and household management. And there's also we hear more and more about the research regarding the emotional and psychological management of the household. So remembering that, you know, this this individual has a doctor's appointment on Tuesday or that, you know, the groceries need to be picked up in order to have the supplies to entertain over the weekend or that I have to stop by the dry cleaner or that we're all out of toilet paper. All of those kinds of things is part of that psychological household management. And women are known to be doing a lot more of that household management than others in that household. And so I think there's just a lot less time logistically to be able to fit in self-care. Women also tend to be the primary caregivers for elderly or disabled family members. And so that's additional time, um, additional responsibility that takes away from their opportunity to engage in self-care. Because again, going back to those psychological obstacles, all of those other responsibilities get placed first. And if they don't, then there's that sense of guilt. There was an interesting study that was conducted by Dr. Alice Domar, who is the author of the bestseller, Self-Nurture, Learning to Care for Yourself as Effectively as You Care for Others. And she's the director of Harvard's Mind-Body Center for Women's Health. And she conducted a telephone survey of 1,000 women. And basically, one of every five women surveyed, so 20%, admitted that if they even took one hour off to do something for themselves, that they would feel selfish, guilty, anxious, and unsettled. And so Dr. Domar tried to look at, you know, what are the roadblocks to self-nurture? What are the biggest obstacles stopping women from caring for themselves? And the largest number of women basically said that they would like to hire someone to do activities like cooking and cleaning, that they would certainly quit their job, that buying groceries online or employing a nanny to care for kids, all of that would leave them some more time for self-nurturing. But what's interesting, what she found is 
She says, curiously, barely 15% of women surveyed said that they'd want their husband, partner, or children to take on more daily tasks so that they could take time for themselves. What that figure says to me is women feel guilty about making their loved ones do their work, quote unquote. And so I think that's really interesting to see is when we think about, you know, how do we how do we share responsibilities? How do we delegate that again these kinds of psychological obstacles become an important component that's stopping us from engaging in self-nurture activities. The good news that was evident from this study was that the vast majority of women, almost 90%, basically were able to say that they would describe a woman who takes time each day for self-care as someone with good self-esteem and someone who knows it's important to care for herself. And I think that's such an interesting thing to notice is, you know, we tend to praise others who we care about and who we have in our lives and admire them for their ability to prioritize themselves. But yet when it comes to ourselves, it makes it a lot more challenging. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that in recent years, there's this double-edged sword of technology and the digital world, where on one hand, it can save us a lot of time, but on the other hand, there's also a lot more distractions. So on one hand, you know, you can easily use your phone to maybe order yourself some groceries, but on the other hand, how much time are you spending kind of scrolling on your phone and trying to keep up with everything that's in social media? So on one hand, it's a time saver, but on the other hand, it's also a time suck. And so what I'd like to do next is really just look at some different ways to shift your mindset from a psychological perspective to help you get over those humps, those obstacles that I mentioned that prevent you from engaging in self-care. And then also look at some of the ways to overcome the logistical obstacles. But let's start with the mindset piece. And what I'd like to do is share with you a few different metaphors that you might be able to use to shift your mindset about how to prioritize self-care. And the reason I'm um, sharing a few of them is because everyone is a little bit different. You know, someone will find one metaphor really resonates with them, whereas another person will find that something else helps resonate with them. And the goal is that these mind sh mindset shifts will slowly move you to a place where you're not feeling guilty when you engage in self-care, for example. So the first thing to think about is, you know, can we think about ourselves the same way that we think about vehicles when we think about maintenance of a car versus fixing a car that's broken down? And what is the return on the investment for that kind of maintenance? I think most of us will recognize how important it is to, you know, routinely check the oil and do the other maintenance for a vehicle because that's going to be a lot easier to do and a lot less costly than waiting and waiting for all of the the lights the engine lights etc to turn on and then you have a busted engine and it's going to cost thousands and thousands of dollars to fix so the return on that maintenance investment is a lot better than the cost of fixing a broken down vehicle and i think sometimes it can be helpful to think of ourselves in that same way where investing a little bit in ourselves on a daily basis is a much better return on the investment than waiting for everything to break down for us to feel burnt out and to have to work through that rather than the daily maintenance exercise. Another potential metaphor 
that might help shift your mindset is to think about it from the perspective of the airplane oxygen mask scenario. I think we've all heard when we're listening to the safety instructions on an airplane, the idea that if the oxygen mask drops down, your role is to first put it on yourself, make sure oxygen is flowing, and then to assist whoever is next to you that might need assistance, whether it's a child or someone who is disabled or elderly. And the point of that is that it's impossible to help others unless you yourself are already being helped. You, you can't deprive yourself of oxygen, help someone else, and then you'll be basically useless to both yourself and the other person because you haven't helped yourself first. And I think that we can think about self-care in the very similar sort of way where if, for example, if you're a young mother and you have kids to take care of, you won't necessarily be able to be present with your children and take care of them the way that you would like to if you're not taking care of yourself first in order to give yourself the energy and the motivation and the buoyancy to be able to do that. And then the third example, the third metaphor I want to share with you is sort of this idea that I talk with a lot of my patients about, which is the idea of refilling the well. The fact that you know your internal resources, your resilience is a well of water and you can continue to take from it. You can continue to fill up buckets and take water from that well as long as there's water in the well. And unless you're continually making sure that the well is full, eventually you're going to run out of water. And so there's a few different ways to refill that well, if you think about it. And you know, one way is, so for example, I, I live in California where we've had a drought for many, many years, and a lot of the lakes and rivers and wells and reservoirs are very much lower than where we would like them to be from a water uh, level perspective. And then a few weeks back, depending on when you're actually listening to this podcast, there was a really, really large rainstorm and it dumped inches and inches and inches of rain all over the area and really refilled reservoirs and lakes and rivers to much higher levels than they had been in years. I would think of that kind of filling the same way that you can think about a vacation, where you know if you have the lucky opportunity to, for example, take a month or two off of your entire life's responsibilities and go on vacation, you can really refill that well all in one day. But that is so rare of an opportunity. I mean, this particular downpour was the first time that this had happened in as far as I can remember, you know, three, four, five, six years. And we don't really have that kind of rain at all. And so if you think about it, that's really rare, that's really hard to get. And it's it was one of those kind of lucky things that happened where all of these reservoirs were refilled all of a sudden. But that doesn't happen. And so what's important to think about is can we get a little bit of rain, fill the well, repeatedly, frequently to make sure that there's water in there rather than waiting for this big deluge to happen, which may or may not occur. And so I would think about refilling the well on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, so that you can continue to have energy and continue to have things to take from that well rather than waiting for a lucky break of vacation. And I think that's something that a, a lot of people, when they think about self-care, they think about, oh, well, I'm going to go on vacation for a week you know, at the end of the year, or maybe in a few months I'll be able to 
you know, go get a massage or something like that. And I think those are really great forms of self-care, but I would really kind of put them in that category of the surprise rainstorm rather than in the category of taking five minutes for yourself on a daily basis to refill that well, because those are things that you really, you, you kind of wait for, and they're not things that refill the well on a daily basis, and your well is going to really kind of run dry in between those vacations or in between those activities, in between those rainstorms, so to speak, as opposed to refilling them on a much more regular basis. So those are a few different kinds of metaphors that you can use to try to really move your own thinking about those psychological obstacles towards a place where you can really begin to engage and prioritize self-care. So that's the psychology of it. What about logistically? I think there's a few different ways that we can also think about time and how to reprioritize our values in order to make sure that self-care is at the top of the priorities. And this is really where the psychology and the logistics are married, because in order to prioritize self-care, you need to have a particular set of underlying beliefs and values about its importance. So that's where the psychology fits in. And once you have been able to get to that place psychologically, you'll then be able to prioritize self-care and be able to kind of move it up on your list of priorities and be able to put it first. I think there's a few different ways to do that once you've made that decision that you you want to do this. I think there's a few different ways to do that. One is certainly thinking about removing things from your plate. One of the ways that I think is sometimes helpful to think about what to prioritize and what to kind of set aside is the the classic two-by-two box where on the horizontal side you have measures of urgency and on the vertical side you have measures of importance. So if you have the the top left-hand box, you have things that are both highly urgent and highly important. And then on the lower right-hand box, you have things that are not urgent and not important. And then you have your top right-hand box, which is going to be things that are less urgent, but still highly important. And then your lower left-hand box, which are gonna be things that are more urgent, but less important. And so thinking about how to organize the various responsibilities that you have on your plate into these various boxes and perhaps one of those boxes you ignore completely that lower right hand box perhaps you know some of those boxes you delegate the things that are maybe important but less urgent or perhaps the things that are less important but urgent you you can perhaps delegate to others. Remember when we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, the fact that a lot of women find it very challenging to delegate to loved ones and thinking about that's a psychological construct, that's a psychological obstacle, and can that be overcome in order to delegate and remove things from your plate? I think another way to think about it sometimes is this idea of the fact that you have so many balls in the air, but not all balls are created equal, meaning, you know, some of the balls that you're tossing around up there are made of glass, but others are actually these bouncy rubber balls. And so it's okay if those drop, you know, they'll bounce right back up. It's okay to not necessarily have to work so hard to juggle all of them because some of them are going to bounce and they'll be just fine. I think it's important to recognize that there's often a really 
good benefit to creating structure and routine and patterns because it's a lot easier to incorporate self-care into your daily habits than to try to create it anew every single time. So if part of your self-care routine is, you know, five minutes of mindfulness every morning with your coffee, or maybe your form of self-care is a 10-minute walk um, around your neighborhood every afternoon, putting that into your schedule so it becomes a habit and routine makes it much more likely that you're going to be able to do it on a daily basis. And then the other technique that I think sometimes can be useful, which sort of combines those concepts of creating structure and routine, is the Pomodoro technique, which you may have heard of, which is this idea of setting a particular timer for an activity. So for example, if you're doing work and you set a timer for 25 minutes, you're basically going to be doing 25 minutes of work followed by five minutes of stretching, for example, and continuing that kind of on and off, on and off, so that you're incorporating the self-care into your productivity day. And again, the return on that investment can be really high, where if you specifically know that you have these 25 minutes, and then you're going to be taking these five minutes to stretch, you know, how much are you going to accomplish in the following 25 minutes, that second, second set of 25 minutes, if you took those five minutes off in order to do something for yourself versus continue to try to push through them? I think it's important to really think about the fact that taking time for ourselves and doing those kinds of self-care activities can really yield better productivity and better returns on our investment. I think the other last piece I want to mention is the fact that self-care doesn't just have to be doing something by yourself. Self-care isn't just stretching on your own or taking a nap or going to the gym. Self-care really can include connecting with others as human beings. We are by our very nature social creatures even those of us who are very much introverted do need social connection and so connecting with others is certainly a form of self-care and then the other way to think about self-care is thinking about it from the perspective of mastery and accomplishment so that might be taking a pottery or painting class that might be you know trying a new skill and getting that sense of mastery and accomplishment as a form of self-care and that doesn't so self-care doesn't have to be you know spending a day at the spa self-care could be any number of things that have to do with connection that have to do with mastery and accomplishment and i think based on what we've talked about today it's important to recognize the connectedness between the psychological and the logistical and how to shift your mindset to get over those psychological obstacles that we just talked about in order to then be able to prioritize and do what you need to do in order to overcome the logistical and time obstacles that are currently preventing you from engaging in self-care and self-nurture. So I hope that this episode has really helped you to think about ways to try to shift your mindset. Take one of those metaphors, try them on for size. If it doesn't work for you, try another one and work towards incorporating more of that self-care because the conclusion The punchline is that self-care is not selfish. Self-care is the opposite. Thanks for joining me for this week's episode. As you know, my goal is to share with you the most helpful information that moves you towards emotional well-being. If you have suggestions or questions, I'd love to hear those. 
And I also always appreciate a rating that will help others find this valuable content. I'm looking forward to connecting with you again next week. Please note that while I am a clinical doctor, this podcast is not a substitute for nor should be taken as medical advice. No specific health advice is being given on this podcast, and no physician-client relationship is created by you listening to this podcast. All information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only.